The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Today, our first scripture comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our second scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Phil. We're in the second week of a three-week series on the vision of downtown church. And uh, Matthew, if you can put our um, tree up. There we go. We are uh, looking at the three, um, I guess, breakdowns of the vision of downtown church. As we saw last week, the roots of downtown church is faith what we believe, and the one in whom we believe. So we are formed by faith. Today we're looking at, but we are restored by family and community, by the church. But we are formed by faith, restored by family, to go out and be good and to to bless the city uh, and to bless our communities and even to bless the world. So this morning we're looking at restored by family. So as we do that, let let me open us in prayer. Lord God, we need you. We need your spirit to guide and direct us to empower your word in our hearts and minds that we might be transformed by your good news of your gospel. Lord Jesus, you are king and head of your church. You're king of your kingdom. And as king, you don't just give rules and commands, but you give power from the inside out by the power of your spirit through the Uh, working through your word to transform our hearts and minds that we might become a people that bring you glory and bless one another 
that we might be an apologetic for the world. Help us to see that, help us to embrace it, and help us to do the work to become a healthy community known as your church. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. So the main idea this morning is God is creating a family that is radically diverse so as to um, glorify him, declare his glory and his love to the world. And to think about that, all we have to do is just take a cursory overview of Scripture. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, and he calls him out, and he says, hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Look up at the sky. See all the stars. Dream with me. You're going to be the father of many nations. And, and we know what he mean, meant by that. What, not that he was going to come to indi individual people and just bless them, that they might live independent lives, but he was going to bring the nations together. He was going to bring what is divided into one family. And we see that marching forward in, the, in God's working, continual working in the, in the people of God as they continually sinned and ran away from that reality. Uh, but he continued to work in them. Then we see Jesus. Jesus comes and he chooses uh, or tells 12 men to follow him. And just a cursory overview of those men, we see a great, a, a great diversity. Uh, the biggest being, or the most obvious, I think, would be Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew, the tax collector, was colluding with Rome. That was his job. Simon the Zealot was colluding against Rome. Uh, you have a far-right conservative and a far-left liberal, and Jesus tells them both, follow me. Come together and start acting like my children Start being family. That's insanity. <laughs> uh, take the January 6th insurrectionist <laughs> and take, you know, I don't know who the other side is, and come together and be a family. And then he takes three sets of brothers, and he says, leave your father and mother, follow me, and I want you to be brothers with each other and with these other knuckleheads. I, these, these are the people that I want to See, come together, function as the family of God, the very church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be an apologetic to the world. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, we see Paul telling us that the, that the work of Jesus in the body of Christ, he has brought down the dividing wall of hostility. So now, through the gospel, those that naturally hate each other, those who are natural enemies, those who would walk on the other side of the street to avoid each other, now through the Lord Jesus Christ, are empowered to be brothers and sisters in Christ, the very church of God. And then, of course, we fast forward to Revelation chapter 7, and we see that Jesus wins. Uh, listen to it. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, everybody, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with loud voices, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People come together in unison to shout something when they agree. Go Grizzlies! <laughs> Arkansas, Razorback, I mean, whatever your chant is. 
We come together to shout that which we are in agreement with. And dear friends, the world will come together and there will be no more enemies and there will be no more skepticism or looking down our noses at one another. But we will stand before the throne in utter agreement and utter unity. Behold the Lamb of God. And we will worship. So God has created a family that is radically diverse to showcase his glory and love to the world. And this new family is called the church. Now notice... The, the goal of this, the goal throughout the scriptures is not diversity. That's the world's social project. It's not diversity. It's family. <laughs> it's not sit in the same room. It's lay your life down for each other. To showcase the power of the gospel and the love of God. And this is what Jesus prays. You want to know what Jesus prays about? I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That's Jesus' prayer for you and me at Downtown Church. That they may all be one just as, and this is just as, Father, you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a high calling, but that's what he's called us to. That is a vision of downtown church because that is what Jesus prays. So how do we do it? Or what? let's walk through it. The first thing that we need to see is exactly what Hillary told the children, and that is we are created for relationship. We're created for relationship. If we didn't believe this before COVID, surely we believe it now. Um. If you just look at the effects of COVID, I, I literally watched social isolation at the very least accelerate the death of my parents, if not be a root cause. My mother had horrible dementia. I had to um, put her in a geriatric psych unit, and it was during COVID, and she was cut off from me and her husband and all of our family and friends. And she absolutely plummeted. I've talked about that last week. That's part of my guilt, but I'm preaching the gospel to myself. Amen. And then my stepfather, isolated from her, couldn't go visit her. Within four weeks of her death, he dies. Social isolation. We've watched what it's done to the youth of our community, especially the most vulnerable, the economically uh, poor children and teenagers in our community who, um, because parents were working, and other factors were, couldn't go to school or, you know, were separated from the community that is school. And therefore, the streets raise them to a large degree. And, it's, and we see the effect of it now. We see that um, car theft has, has gone out the roof. It, it's increased 100%. And we've watched the age, the average age of um, those taking cars from like 18 to 20, 21 down to 15 and 16. It's hit us all. I read an article. I've read a lot of articles. This fascinates me, and I think we're going to be studying this for years, but what COVID has done to all of us. Um, this is a study by Susan Simpson from um, Catholic University in Milan, Italy. She, she writes, the most common psychological disorders emerging from COVID-19 isolation are anxiety and panic, 
obsessive compulsive symptoms, insomnia, digestive problems, as well as depressive symptoms and post-traumatic stress. These are not only a direct consequence of the pandemic, but also largely driven by the effects of prolonged social isolation. That is the objective lack of interaction with others. The medical journal, The Lancet, recently published an article from which a clear and alarming picture emerges. Periods of isolation, even less than 10 days, can have long-term effects with, um, with the presence, up to three years later, of psychiatric symptoms. She goes on. She talks about the effect in terms of unity and disorder in society. While the levels of environmental stress continue to rise, we're witnessing the deterioration of relationships. Rather than connecting people, restrictive measures are creating rivalries and arousing discord between people. We saw that in our own country, January 6th, and so many other um, examples, as well as the, the disruption of the dissonance in our own hearts toward the country, toward others, their views. How in the world could they believe this? I can't believe they're believing. I can't, you know, that kind of stuff dividing us and our nation. Well, what's going on here? What's going on is basically God's law cannot be broken. We can only be broken by it. God's design can't be broken. Don't think you're trying to break it. I, I was thinking, I, something hit me, a viewpoint of this hit me when um, Hillary was given the children's sermon this morning that I've never, I've never talked, uh, thought about before in this way. We were create, you know, God created man, put him in creation, and, and you know, and if I, I planted a church in Colorado and lived out there five years, and I'm telling you, that's their, that's their gospel. That is the flow. Me and creation, that's all I need. That just hit me in such a way. No, it's not. And there it is in creation. Man had creation. Perfect creation. Perfect animals. There were no lions looking for his blood or his meat. He, you know, he, it was perfect peace. And it wasn't enough. So God created woman. Genesis 1.27, there it is. Let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It is set in our DNA, and as much as we run from it, as much as we rage against it, we don't win, but his design does. And we will be broken to the extent that we do not move toward each other, but we move away. Because we are made in the image of God who exists in community, Father, Son, Spirit, three gods, one person. A relationship of trust, a relationship of, of, of submitting to the other, dying for the other, a, a relationship of not looking to self but looking to the other, a relationship in which Father, Son, and Spirit know each other better than anyone knows anybody, perfect intimacy. Anything we know about intimacy, anything we know about relationship is coming directly from him. He possesses it. He is the epitome of it. Think about that. That is the one, that's the image, that's the design after which we have been designed. I've been learning, doing work of the last few years on attachment issue. In 1958, John Bowlby, a uh, psychoanalyst, discovered this, this whole reality that, that attachment is what we all need. And, and, and this is, um, well, I don't have it here, but anyway, basically, I'll, I'll describe it to you. Attachment is simply, uh, if you put it in, 
uh, parent-child relationship, it's a child needs more than just two parents in the house. A child needs parents who are attuned to them, who know them, who are pursuing them, who are developing relationship with them. Yes, providing structure and discipline, absolutely. But in the context of attunement, in the context of I see you, I know you, I acknowledge your, your, your fears, your, your, your likes, your dislikes, I acknowledge your feelings, I am affirming you as a human being made in the image of God. I'm attuned to you. And friends, we know as parents, we need those children to be attuned to us too. It's hard just to give and give and give and then, then you don't feel like you're connecting emotionally with your children. It's tough. Why? Because we're made in the image of a God who is attuned to one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even now, God is utterly attuned to us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So we are created for relationship, but the place that we need that, the place that God has provided for that is the church. How in the world can I convince us of that? Um, that the church even above family, really. That everything we know, you know, Jesus said, you're, you, you know, you've got to leave father and mother. He even says, you've got you to leave father and mother to be my disciple, to create this all-new family. In a broken world, Jesus' church is to be the place of restorative healing. Is that what the church has been? Is that what the church is now? For many of us, no. I think all of us here probably have some type of trauma from the church. Um, in the weekend of February uh, 4th and 5th, 3, 4, and 5, we're bringing in a man by the name of Art Perea. Art works for a ministry called Reboys. And Reboys's um, mission statement is they are a resource to help the church um, uphold the historic biblical, you know, um, theology and doctrine of sexuality, and yet know how to minister to and resource same-sex attracted uh, men and women, believers. And so Art is a Brazilian uh, man, and he... Uh, discovered when he was a teenager that he was same-sex attracted and you say well how, how could he could, that's just what he was and it finally realized well not everybody's like this and the church began to mishandle that treasure that he entrusted to them and he has tremendous trauma from the church and from individual Christians. And on Saturday the 4th, February 4th, he's going to do a seminar. And a lot of it will just be telling his story. Um, but then helping us look forward and how we can do better. How we can be the loving people of God. And the applications of that, so Art has been working with our staff over the last year and the applications of the principles that he's laying down are just gospel applications that have immense application to so many other things, all of our relationships. In other words, what, what do we do with our singles in the church that we say, you can't have sex outside of marriage? And that's about all we say to them. That's about the extent. As opposed to, 
This is what God prescribes, and this is the life of flourishing. This is the lane of flourishing. We are opening up our homes. We're opening up our families. You're going to be part of our families. You are not going to be alone because you are part of the family of God at downtown church, and you are mine and I am yours. We are family. There's no excuse for anybody to be alone because we are the family of God. Those are the kind of things that we've got to be after. And it's deep in Scripture. This is not some side issue. Just look at the Ten Commandments. God is laying down the, the, um, the boundaries, if you will, of relationship. And the first is that we've got to get right is relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. But how is it stated positively by Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And so the, the, the first few commandments are about, look, if you look to anything else to be your God, you will not have a life of flourishing. If you look to anything else, it's going to break you. You're not going to win over my law. I am the one that will please you. I am the one that will satisfy you. I am the one that you were created by and created for. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, this is the invitation of the gospel right there in, in the first uh, four commandments of, the, of, of um, the Ten Commandments. But then God turns his attention to interpersonal relationship. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, that sounds so restrictive. No, out of love. You go try to commit adultery and then love the spouse who was married to the one that it does violence to community. That's why you don't commit adultery. And it does violence to your own soul. Because you're not living for God as everything. You're living for yourself. And you're saying, I can use people for my own. You shall not murder. Your neighbor is not there. It, they may tick you off. They may not cut their grass. Or they may cut the grass at 6 in the morning and, and make you mad. But you can't go kill them. Why? Because... In the gospel, freedom and a life of flourishing is found in wanting the best for your neighbor. Maybe you need to have a hard, loving conversation. But you can't go kill them. <laughs> That's what God says. Don't covet. Why? Because to love your neighbor is to want his flourishing, is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Oh, I got a raise at work. Oh, yeah, whatever. I hate you. No, really? That's incredible. I'm so happy. That's the Ten Commandments are just saying this is how to live and this is where to find flourishing. This is what Jesus is praying for. Basically, for us to be a people that love God and love neighbor right here. And note, he prays for this, for the Father to make God's diverse people a unified family now. It's easy for us to go to Revelation 7, 9. Oh, I know that's what's going to happen, but come on. It's unrealistic now. Jesus is praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now. He is, he is praying. He's not praying a future prayer. He's praying a prayer. Make every one of your believers one. Just as I am in you and you are in me and they are in us, may we be one because that is, the perp that is my purpose for the world, and that is certainly my purpose for the church. Revelation is a preview, uh, not a handbook of how to connect the dots on how the world's going to come to a bloody end. But it's, it, it's a, it's a fast-forward, it's a preview. It's saying, this is what is coming. 
that God wants you to do now, work for now. Basically, his will is for every tribe, every nation, every language, every person to be united in his church and so close and so loving toward one another that the world goes, wait a minute, what about that community? Those people are different. Is that what we're doing at Downtown Church? Well, how do we do it? How do we become the loving family of God? I've been watching. Anybody watch the Netflix series Last Chance You? Am I the only one? All right, there we go. We got a couple. So Last Last Chance You, and I, you know, I don't watch it and say Richard recommended it because the language is horrific, and I've had to take breaks because it is so horrific. Because basically, it's junior college um, basketball teams and football teams. And you're following these young players. Some of them were in D1 and had to come down. Um, as a matter of fact, um, oh, my goodness. Uh, the Georgia quarterback played Juco ball in Mississippi and then came back and won the national championship. So it's that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm watching this, and I'm watching this. One of them was, a, you know, looked at the football team, I think out in California. And, and one of the players is homeless. He's living in his car, and he had been for two years, but he has a family. Why would you live in your car for two years when you have a family in the area because his father was physically abusive and emotionally abusive when he was growing up? And he'd rather live in his car than go home to that. And then you watch him, and you see that he has these outbursts of anger, you know? And if you don't know his story, you're like, what's wrong with him? Why can't he control himself? But you know his story and you go, I know exactly what's wrong with him. And you're amazed that he's still playing football. You're amazed he's still living after what he endured and continues to endure, really, with no real resolution. And friends, it hit me. I'm convinced more and more that past and present trauma is the root of all relational conflict, or at least the majority of it, in every community and definitely in the church. I'm convinced that we are acting out of our trauma, we're acting out of what happened to us, we're acting out of what was done to us, and unresolved trauma and pain and hurt, and I'm there with you. I am just now at 50, uh, I was 57, maybe a little toward 56, toward the end, just now realizing this whole reality that, you know, my father leaving my home when I was 11, and my mother being emotionally um, absent, how that wired me to basically, you know, this is how it was explained to me. Richard, you had to learn to survive. And you did. But you don't have to do that anymore. That is just now clicking with me. Basically, Richard's view, and it, it helped me in, in, in a career in ministry because I'm a self-starter. But what it, of course, I hope some of it has to do with the glory of God and what he's called me to. But at the, some of it, though, is that I had to learn to do things alone. I had to learn to start my own self-care in my own life. I had to take control of situations. I had to lead. Why? Because there was nobody in my life leading for me. And once I began to realize that, I'm, oh, that's why I don't know how to develop leaders well. I'm not good at that. And, and it was almost freedom. It was, I always thought there was something wrong with me. Well, there is something wrong with me, but, but that, you know, that's okay. 
I think that in the church, we have no excuse. We are emotionally immature, and the only thing that emotionally, the only product an emotionally immature person can produce is an emotionally immature community. And we've got to do better. We've got to do better. Um, here are, so here's what, here's what I had to do. Um, I had to admit, number one, I am this way because I had to survive. But then I had to realize, number two, God created me for more than survival. Isn't that beautiful? That was gospel news to me. Number three, I need to use every resource at my disposal to unmask the evil and heal. I need to bring what is in darkness to light so I can diffuse its power over me. I must do so, hear this, for the glory of God, for myself, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my church family, those who work with me, and the world. To be a healthy family, we have to know our story. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But we also um, have to know each other's story. The, the parable of the Samaritan woman, at Jesus, the woman at the well that Jesus meets at the well. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going, I'm going to wrap this up quick. We've got to go to communion. I could spend three hours on this. Uh, I love this stuff. It's fascinating to me. But... Um, so you go to the woman at the well, and Jesus comes to her, and he says, go, go bring your husband. And what does she say? Well, I don't, she said, I don't have a husband. That is hiding. That's Genesis 3, hiding. And Jesus doesn't say, I love this. Jesus goes, I know, dear. I know you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And what does she do? She breaks and she runs to tell the city, I met one who knows everything about me. But it wasn't just that. It was, I know one who, who, who knows everything about me, and he loved me. He knows my story, and he didn't reject me. I have found the Christ, and he knows how wicked and evil I am. And he says, come to me, because he came to me. He met me at the well. How glorious is that? Now, what if we became a family like that? What we do typically go is see that woman and go, you, oh, uh-uh. I want to meet with you. I'm, I'm busy. My calendar's full. Instead of, man, what, tell me your story. I can't wait to hear. Who has hurt you? What has happened to you? Nobody gets there without trauma. Nobody gets there without pain. Nobody becomes that angry or that whatever without something having been done to them. Deep relationship. We've got to know each other's story because deep relationships demand vulnerability. And the gospel is the power. We've got to go back to the being formed by faith. The gospel says, the gospel gives us hope. Here's the first hope. You're worse than you allow yourself to believe. Nobody in here has gotten to the bottom of their story. You say, Richard, I've been working on my story. I don't care. I am seeing so many, I, my head just wants to explode. I have to just kind of take a break. 
all of sin, you know, we are, all, we are worse than we allow ourselves to believe, and we are worse than we're going to let ourselves believe. We're going to run from it. But simultaneously, we are loved and accepted more than we've ever dreamed. And that gives me the power. That gives us the power to not be afraid of what we might find in our story. We hide things. And in real trauma, we just totally cover it up and don't even think about it and act like it didn't happen. And maybe we've forgotten some things. That's a reality. But we can go there because we have a God that loves and embraces us. And what if we had a community that did the same? So what do we do? Number one, we believe the gospel. Like literally, not surface level, but we go deep into our stories. Don't tell me that you believe the gospel, but you're not willing to go deep in your story. Well, the gospel says I'm broken, but yeah, I'm not going to take any time to really find out how I'm broken. Don't tell me you believe the gospel if you don't have the boldness to go there or the faith that Jesus is going to hold your hand and love you and look at you with tremendous compassion and healing power and love. Believe the gospel message. Second, admit your story. Write it out. So I put something on the round this morning that is a guideline, two-page guideline on how to write your story. I would highly encourage you to do that. I have 50 copies on that table in the back um, by the tithe box. Admit it and write it. And friends, this is a process. This is years. Don't look for overnight, oh, this is an assignment for this week or one morning this week. This is the rest of your life. Help me understand my story, God. Help me. Maybe you need counseling. Maybe you need to ask other people. And that's kind of my next thing is tell somebody your story. Somebody safe. Somebody you can trust. Tell somebody your story. It may need to be a counselor. But tell somebody your story. And then learn each other's story. I think what would be an incredible exercise for downtown church is if everybody here called somebody this week, invited somebody this week, maybe somebody that you know well, but you've never heard their story. You've never said, tell me your story. And that person may say, well, I don't know that I really know my story. Well, hey, would you do some work on that and let's get together because I want to hear your story. Or maybe I'll tell you my story. You know what would happen? Walls would start coming down. Empathy would start just growing like weeds. Because if we are a people that don't know each other's story and we don't even know our own story, there's no hope of us operating as one as Jesus is praying. Dear friends, let's do the work. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that there's hope for broken men and women like us. And I pray that you would lead us to this table to find the wholeness that is Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would so delight in the one who is for broken men and women, that we would delight in the one who came so that in this moment and in this season, we might have the boldness to look at what was done to us and maybe even what we've done to others and find healing in your love and find healing by bringing all of that evil to the light that you might diffuse it for us that it might have no power, no stronghold over us anymore. Oh, God, may we say no to the strongholds, <laughs> and may we walk forward in faith. Free us by your gospel, oh, God. Do a mighty work. Walk with us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. May we respond to the glorious hope of the gospel as we bring our tithes and offerings. Uh, there's a box in the back, and you can see how to do that on the screen behind me. 
but especially as we come to the table this morning. Amen, amen. Thank you, Lord. Ah, what hope we have in the gospel of Jesus. May we go in that hope and in that power this week. Uh, may we receive the benediction, lift your hands forward. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Go in peace.